2: Tom Walls may be the tireless force behind Iowa City's Alternative Cultural Experience, Uptown Bill's Small Mall, but the work of the mall is the legacy of an amazing mentally retarded man, Bill Sacter. Because of his experience with Bill, Tom found his life's work, helping people with disabilities own and run their own businesses. Tom's life has been fruitful and full of service inspired by the Catholic teachings of his childhood. He was a Peace Corps director in Central America, taught social work at the university, and is a Gandhi scholar. But it is no exaggeration to say that his friendship with Bill Sactor changed the lives of Tom and many others. Bill entered the Faribault Institution for Epileptics and Idiots at the age of seven and spent 45 years there being released in the mid-1960s. He so inspired the admiration of those around him that his life became the subject of two award-winning movies, garnering both Golden Globe and Emmy Awards, as well as a book by Tom, The Unlikely Celebrity. Tom's retirement at age 74 includes weeks of 70-plus hours of his labor of love with the Extend a Dream Foundation. If you're in Iowa City, you can visit the small mall at 401 South Gilbert Street, and you'll have a delightful time there. Good afternoon, Tom. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I ran into an article about you and the whole history of Uptown Bill's small mall and the coffee shop and all this. I was so impressed. Tell us about the history of Wild Bill, how you got here. Just give us a background to tell us about this kind of miniature miracle.
3: Well, whatever has happened really is uh, to be credited to a man called Bill Sachter, who actually was handicapped at age seven. He was living in Minneapolis at the time. He was the third child of a Russian Jewish immigrant family. His father had died in the epidemic of 1919, and this was 1920 when Bill was starting school. And uh, he wasn't the brightest kid on the block. He actually had a diagnosis of mental retardation. And they saw him as a slow learner. And intelligence tests had just been invented. So one thing led to another. And they tested him and said, well, you can't stay in regular school. And they had no alternative schools other than state hospitals. So they, at age seven, took him from his family or his widowed mother and placed him in Fairbolt State Hospital, where he remained for the next 44 years. Uh, Mama, who was a victim of race prejudice at the time, or religion prejudice, a lot of the second wave of immigration, as you know, was very anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish and anti-East European. So she was afraid that she would have uh, been deported. So basically she snuck away and didn't come back and Bill had no idea where she was and so he lived in the institution until they decided to push him out which they did in the mid-sixties that was a time I was teaching at the University of Minnesota and by coincidence I had a wonderful young man in my class who wasn't a social work student he was a theater student Uh, but I became very fond of him and he was very talented so whenever I had a job, I would involve him in one way or another. Well, what happens is that I will eventually come to Iowa as dean of the School of Social Work and will call back to Minneapolis to ask this young man who was in my class, his name, by the way, is Barry Morrell, if he would come to Iowa City and basically work for me. In the interim, he had met this bill who was finally had gotten a job at the end of the 1960s washing pots and pans in a country club. What happens is then Bill had become an acquaintance of this young student of mine, Barry Morrow, whose wife happened to be a waitress at this restaurant where Bill was now working as a pot and pan washer. So the young man, Barry was about 22, 23 at the time, kind of a hippie, had his own band, and he started to take Bill out around the city and involve him with his friends and one thing led to another and Barry just decided that he was going to bring Bill into his family because Bill had never really had a family so he went and assumed legal guardianship of Bill when I called back to Barry and asked him if he would come and work with me you know in my new job because he was just so talented and I had you know some ideas what I wanted him to do he said he would come but because he assumed guardianship of Bill He had to bring Bill, or he wanted to bring Bill, and I'd have to give Bill a job. So Bill shows up with Barry in 1974. I had the job for Barry doing our audio-visual, and I just uh, had Bill do a a coffee shop. Well, actually, just make coffee. But that quickly became a coffee shop. In the ensuing years, we we developed this coffee shop that he chooses to call Wild Bill's, and uh, it becomes very popular because... This man, the handicapped man, Bill Sachter, was the most incredible human being I've ever met. He was the best example of our species that I've ever known in my 74 years. And I've been around smart people and dumb people and handicapped people and able people. But he, he stood out from all of them. And the world could recognize this. The people around him were just attracted to him. And by the end of the 70s, he became virtually legendary in Iowa City.
2: You
4: have lived such a gentle life upon this earth. That I am stunned by your sight If I could give But a token of the love you have Then I might not be this lonely Tonight, let them have their smug and their cool, confined by fashion and peer. I love you for your courage in this frightened atmosphere. I love. You for your courage in this frightened atmosphere. There are so few brave ones like you. Need I? Ever wondering what to do What to venture What to gain And you have loved In a total way From flesh to soul You speak without coy Without pose, your eyes can see that the Emperor has lost his clothes, and what's more, you'll tell the whole world what he stole. Let them have their fad and their fix Confined by fashion and peer I love you for your courage In this frightened atmosphere I love you for your courage In this frightened atmosphere.
3: It was at that point that Barry and I talked about telling this story beyond Iowa City because he was such a metaphor for the best in humanity. We decided we were going to do a documentary, Can't Raise the Money, Serendipity Steps In. Next thing I know, we're talking to some people from CBS, and Bill's life will eventually be told in two movies, a movie in 1981 that becomes the movie of the year, shown to 40 million people on a Saturday night, and another sequel to it in 1983 called Bill on His Own.
2: Well, that's the important seeds. I mean, part of the seed, I think, is... You doing social work, you having students that you're nurturing. Obviously, something about the way you nurtured Barry and encouraged him was passed on. So the story doesn't stop with Bill. I think that the story of Bill ends up being seeds for further gifts for the race.
3: If you want to follow serendipity, I'll really uh, share this with you. The legacy of Bill probably is much more interesting than the life of Bill although the life of bill was richly beautiful but bill affected a lot of people's lives so well, like myself I've chosen to work until I die doing what we'd originally done with bill which is to provide employment to a man with a disability and you know find him a place where the world could really discover what a great human being he was when I say the world I mean a lot of the abled community which sorta of shies away from people with disability that led to what I'm doing now, running this complicated project sponsored by an organization that we have called Extend the Dream Foundation, but really we speak of it in terms of Uptown bill projects, various kinds of Uptown Bill projects. The impact of those projects on a community and on the people that are involved with them is really just very remarkable, and so the legacy has been fun and interesting, But I was going to tell you this way in which all of this works, you know, how these things come back to haunt you a little bit or to make you feel very good about the impact of a mentally retarded man on the world. We had the situation where Bill's movie was to be told and Barry and I were out there advocating for its telling. Well, the next thing we know, Barry is the screenwriter. And he will write a movie that becomes the movie of the year and he will become the Emmy Award winning screenwriter of 1981, even though he never wrote anything before in his life. That will lead him to the West Coast and to Hollywood. The next full length feature film that he will write was The Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman, which was an Academy Award winning film. And Barry won an Academy Award for Best Screenwriter. And he's written... I know he's written over 30 films, and, you know, half of them have been made. So there's that story. Well, anyway, staying with Barry as screenwriter, when Bill was still alive and we were spending one summer doing a little project educating other many retarded junior high school students how to refinish furniture, because that was one of our avocational interests. And there was a young poet from the writer's workshop here, the famous writer's workshop, black kid from... Waterloo, who kind of got interested in this whole Bill's Coffee Shop and Bill and everything. This is still back in the 70s. His name was Ray Grant. Ray would join us in teaching those kids that summer even though he didn't know anything about refinishing furniture. He was funny and interesting to have around. So he kind of falls in love with Bill because everybody did and thought Bill was just the greatest. Well, Bill will die in 1983, about the time of the second movie. And Ray Grant will write two powerful poems to eulogize him at his funeral. Anyway, Ray Grant graduates, and he goes off. And I don't hear from him again. We'd been good friends. We'd actually played basketball together. He goes off. I don't know where. He's going to be a songwriter, he said, or something. And about ten years later, I hear from him And he tells me that he's become a stand-up comedian in Atlanta, but he's so bad they want to throw him out of town. Well, apparently what will happen, and I don't know this at the time because I'm at the point where he's not doing well, that he is so bad that he becomes an Atlanta celebrity. And he parlays this into a position of influence in the entertainment world. And so he's able to earn a very good living doing that and gain a lot of attention. Anyway, I kept in touch with Barry Morrow, the screenwriter, all through these years. And, you know, when I started this project in 2001 of Uptown Bills, you know, we're now moving off the campus into the community and planning to do all kinds of little, we're going to have a mall of businesses owned and operated by people with disability. So I kept in touch with Barry, put him on our board, Talk to him from time to time, you know, got him to come over, you know, to Iowa City every once in a while and do a little talk as a celebrity and all of that. One of my ideas was when we opened up the small mall, this program that is the Uptown Bills program was to really tell the Bills story, which should be told as a documentary featuring Bill. We happened to have 11 hours of old footage accumulated over the years. Don't ask me how it all got together other than there's a guiding hand in all of this that's leading us, leading Bill back to the world and back to the contemporary world to tell them how to discover peace and justice in the world. I'm convinced that we've got to have a real documentary. So I find a documentarian in town who will oddly win an Emmy Award himself for Best Documentary Writer in 2005. And he takes on the project, and we get him all of the material and all of that. Only it costs a lot of money to have a professional filmmaker do this. And so I'm out there raising money, and we eventually raised the first 80000 without too much trouble. But we needed another fifty, dollars So I went back to Barry, and I said, why don't you give us the fifty and be the executive producer? He says, well, I don't have it at the moment. My money's all tied up in developing a film. Well, the film he's developing is the story of Bob Marley, the reggae king, deceased reggae star who impacted the world with his music. And Barry says, oh, by the way, my partner in this is Ray Grant. Ray somehow had a connection in Jamaica to, you know, anyway, it's all coming back. I think Barry's going to sell the Bob Marley story. If he does, he's giving us the final $50,000 to finish the film it's serendipity it's 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 you know where the legacy just won't quit it just keeps going and going and going and going
2: you mentioned the guiding hand there's a guiding hand leading us to peace and justice can you talk a little bit about your roots i know you went to st john's up there in minnesota as did one of my very good friends in eau claire
3: Well, I'm one of those boring uh, Roman Catholics that really had my taste of it uh, sort of in the catechism side. And it had an impact on me. I don't know, ever since I can remember, I felt my life should be dedicated to service. That's the only thing that made any sense that human beings, if they're alive and healthy, uh, ought to be serving each other and not, you know, sort of pursuing their own little accumulation of wealth and, you know, all that stuff. It just didn't fit my philosophy of life, even as a kid. So St. John's was a natural stepping stone to having that deepened into my head and soul. And, And so, you know, I took my career as a social worker, which supposedly was is to serve people, and I matured in that and had the good fortune to have a lot of things happen to me, you know, lots of opportunities, directing Peace Corps in Honduras and becoming a Gandhi scholar by having a Indian friend of mine named me in his last will and testament to dispose of his writings and then end up making trips to India and ending up at a university Gandhi founded and All of that, and and it all kind of reinforced beliefs. And during one visit to India, I get to see Mother Teresa because this guy used to live in Calcutta, and so I went there. And You know, so these things for a kid from northern Minnesota, a town of 87, this is pretty exotic stuff for me. But it all fit into this philosophy of whatever you want to call it, you know, this questioning why this aggressive materialism why this kind of capitalist system we live in with giant money machines out there called walmart and this one and that one it's a kind of bizarre world in so many ways and then you load it with the invention of all these arms and spread them around the world when you have all of this crazy religious hatred and jihads and And all of the rest that you sometimes say, is there any hope at all for human beings? And I think back to Bill, and I just said, you know, he's our answer, a simple man who really only wanted to provide a little love and kindness in the world. I wrote a book about his life called The Unlikely Celebrity. And in the research and in thinking this thing through, I realized the kind of role that a man like Bill would play as a model of peace and justice. You know, he certainly wasn't somebody with the intelligence to go into the United Nations and, you know, into big peace networks and activists. He was just a man at a primary level who could live his life exemplifying what is a spiritually healthy life for a human being. And, you know, essentially that's what he did. And so my struggle has been, how do we keep that story alive? How do we get it back to this society? You know, I'm so sick of the crap that we see on television and the junk that fills, you know, just playing off, puriently off, all of the violence and filling the little children with it. You know, it it just, it's so bizarre, (laughs) you know. It just doesn't make any sense at all that, you know, being gifted with this little planet that is really very beautiful and, and basically pretty benign, to chew it up and to tear it up for a bunch of plastic crap and, And even in the area you you work in, you know, computers and all the rest, this sort of instant communication, this sort of all of this helter-skelter of rewiring the world so that we can talk to each other immediately. There's no room left for peace, quiet, meditation. You know, I'm getting to be an old man, so I can remember when a walk in the woods was a walk in the woods. Now, maybe there is no way to walk in the woods with six billion people. I don't know.
2: social worker and teaching social work, I believe, for a number of years. I've known a number of people who got involved in social work and then got out because they didn't feel like they could do real good stuff in it. Evidently, you found a way to do your work, your soul work, while doing your job. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked for you and within the field of social work?
3: Yeah, I I think most social critics really have to begin with the professions to criticize you know they're just capitalists who are one way or another they got a little trying to get a little corner on the market a little monopoly and parlaying it into uh, some wealth and social work is no different than the rest just like law purports to pursue justice we pursue service yeah it's true and it's untrue but to me social work was never bill was the best social worker I knew in our program Barry might have been the second best, had nothing to do with who was sitting in the classroom and who'd walk out of the program with an MSW. I've never had any particular respect for degrees. I know there are good ones, and I know there are bad ones. And so I look at the human being and what they do with their life and who they are, and they can be people without any education at all. I was grateful that somebody would give me enough of a living that I could raise six kids and have a family and be able to talk about the things that are a joy to talk about. I was never someone who would rise very high in the established side of social work because I was its greatest critic or its least orthodox member. And that was okay because, you know, I had enough talent to do what I had to do and I wrote a lot of interesting things. They tolerated me, and and that was fine. You know, I got to live out my life in the university, and I have enough of a retirement that I don't live very high off the hog, but I live simply but comfortably, Gandhi-like and I can do exactly what I want to do, and I don't have to take a dime from the world anymore. So I run this enterprise, which is pretty substantial. It's a pretty big enterprise, really, for our community. I don't make a dime, and I probably have to actually pay a little money to have the privilege of being a volunteer, but it's worth it. It really has been a wonderful opportunity.
2: You made comment about the giant money machines. And one of the things that caught my eye when I first saw the article that led me to you was the whole idea of the small mall, the one that's human-sized. I'm so captivated by the idea. Tell me what's in the small mall. Tell me about the people who are part of the small mall.
3: First of all, the small mall is listed under the malls in the phone book in Iowa City. The other two, of course, are the giant malls. But it was meant to be a bit facetious by saying "small mall, you know Gandhi, one of his principles is swadeshi that's the Sanskrit word for really small is beautiful." Gandhi felt that we ought to always organize a world in terms of face to face communication and in direct human contact, which makes you know our computer virtual communication a little bit dangerous as a result of that. It just seemed to me that we needed to demonstrate something to the community. And so this was our version of a mall. We had at one time six businesses in here. We now have four because we've bought a building and relocated several other businesses. We have nine businesses all together. Now our businesses are owned as well as operated by people with disability. And they're, they're really were all low-income people with disability who've been given an opportunity, the man at the counter in the coffee shop that you got your malted milk from today. I'm telling your readers, you know, that that's why he's a little pudgy. The guy behind the counter has chronic mental illness. He's been mentally ill for a long time. The woman that just walked through our uh, where we're interviewing runs a vintage store, a beautiful vintage store, the nicest antique store in town. Vintage clothing and all that. She also has chronic mental illness since she was 20, but she's educated. She has a college degree and and some others. The lady that runs the bookstore where we're doing our interview, for your listeners, we're in a small mall in a building in the downtown area of Iowa City. The front part of it is a ice cream bar and coffee shop, or ice cream and coffee bar. The middle two rooms are a beautiful little bookstore. We call it the best little bookstore in Iowa. The back room, where in about an hour we will have a wonderful concert on Irish music, is our music venue. It's called the Mad Hatter Room. The Mad Hatter himself would make us all look thin. He's 452 pounds, a Vietnam vet who got a little bit shell-shocked and struggles with a serious case of diabetes. But he's a wonderful man, and he runs the music. And then we have another little shop that does super graphics, business cards, flyers, posters. A man with cerebral palsy who is wheelchair-bound comes in with his gnarled hands and very bright, very capable, master chess player in Iowa, ranked chess player. He runs that little business.
5: It's not the- What you're born with, it's what you choose to bear It's not how big your share is, but how much you can share And it's not the fights you dreamed of, but those you really fought It's not what you've been given, it's what you do with what you've got You must know someone like him, he was tall and strong and lean With a body like a greyhound and a mind so sharp and keen But his heart, just like a laurel, grew twisted round itself Till almost everything he did caused pain to someone else It's not just what you're born with, it's what you choose to bear It's not how big your share is, but how much you can share And it's not the fight you dreamed of,
2: but those you really fought
5: It's not what you've been given, it's what you do with what you've got And what's the good of two strong legs if you only run away? And what use is the finest voice if you've nothing good to say? What good is strength and muscle if you only push and shove? And what's the use of two good ears if you can't hear those you love? It's not just what you're born with, it's what you choose to bear. It's not how big your share is, but how much you can share. And And it's it's not the fight you dreamed of, but those you really fought. It's not what you've been given, it's what you do with what you've got. Between those who use their neighbors, and those who use a cane between those in constant power and those in constant pain between those who run to evil and those who cannot run tell me which ones are the cripples and which ones touch the sun it's not just what you're born with it's what you choose to bear it's not how big your share is but how much you can share and it's not the fight you dreamed of but those you really fought it's not what you've been given, it's what you do with what you've got. It's not what you've been given, it's what you do with what you've got.
3: So that's the small mall. And it is small. It's designed to be accommodating. Unlike come and go at the corner, our convenience store, we say, we're come and stay. You know, the sofas and the soft chairs, whatever people want to come in and just get out of the heat or the cold or whatever the day brings.
2: You started out Catholic, and you were clearly inspired by part of that. It it fed you, and um, obviously your connection to Mother Teresa was something that's inspirational for you because I read that you had at one point thought about retiring there to go work for the Sisters of Charity. Are you still Catholic? What part of those beliefs are still fueling your life at this point?
3: I think I'm more Catholic than I ever was, but I don't want to turn your listeners off. The truth of the matter is I have a hard time with the institutional church, as many, many people have had in their lives, and it's not just because a few priests have gotten themselves into deep doo-doo with their own sexuality. but. Much more the institutions over time have a real problem. But their origins, if you look at the central beliefs and the underlying philosophy or underlying theology, are wonderful. And so I think I'm even more of a Catholic today than I ever was, even though you'll find me on Sunday morning cleaning apartment buildings, raising money for our organization rather than running off to mass. And I don't mean to turn that off to anybody whose belief system is that's important. What's important is that one lives Catholic or lives not Catholic. That makes it a sect. One of the things that I've learned having studied Gandhi and teaching Gandhi and reading immense amounts of things are that like Gandhi, I believe that there were a tremendous number of very inspiring prophets in the world and they had a lot to say and they had a lot of good role modeling. You have to recognize that these were great, great people who had a lot in common. It's bringing all of that together. That's really raises you to the high point of spirituality. It's sad, you know, when we become sort of conventional knee-jerk, this or that, and, you know, just get caught up in ritual and get caught up with a few do's and don'ts. You know, I'm beyond that.
2: When you mentioned before that you're retired, I... Had a hard time not laughing because it doesn't seem to me that you've retired very much, pulled back from things. It seems like you've got your feet and hands in things more than ever. You mentioned to me earlier that you lectured sometimes, even at Scattergood Friends School, where I was just the other night for a Quaker gathering. You mentioned you lectured there and other places about Gandhi. Is that a circuit you're still doing?
3: Yeah, they still tolerate me over at the university. You know, when you get to be what they call a professor emeritus, uh, the world quickly forgets about you and makes an assumption that you're destined to play golf the rest of your life. You know, to me, retirement is really being freed from earning a living and being able then to do what's worth doing. And what's worth doing for me is to pour everything I have into service, Because I was coming out of a tradition of working around disability, it was natural that I take that, although I could have easily gone to the Mother Teresa thing, except that I didn't want to be in India when my grandchildren were growing up, so this gave me a little opportunity. But this is an incredible job. It's 70, 80 hours a week. It's seven days a week, every day of the year. But it means, of course, I'm never bored. Some people think it's sort of silly that I'm over cleaning apartment buildings, but we have a contract. It's one of our small businesses. And when, you know, I just go out and work with handicapped people and help them get through the day and give them a little leadership or inspiration, and I don't have to pay myself, so that money goes into paying the overhead of our small mall and everything else we have to pay. This downtown rent is a killer, you know. But it's nothing, you know, by the time I get through doing the other half of this duplex, I'll be, you know, I had to change shirts at midday and I'll be exhausted tonight, but it's a healthy kind of exhaustion. I've seen it with a lot of old people, you know, who just thrive on what they've always thrived on. And I think they get to live a fuller life. And most of us had to do jobs for income that had some negative parts of it and now I I define the job so you know I do what I want to do. Anyway, that's my definition of retirement. I'm be a gerontologist, so I go out and talk about uh, what I call it reverse retirement. Once you retire, is a chance to go to work and do some real work that's worthwhile.
2: I want to trace a little bit about the course of your history to better understand other influences on you. One of them is. You did this work with the Peace Corps, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the late 70s. You were a Peace Corps director back then. Were you connected at all to this kind of 60s revolution, too? Was this part of what fueled you?
3: You know, I'd I'd answer that yes and no. I was, uh, well, I got actually invited to be director of Peace Corps in Honduras, Central America, and because I had four kids, uh, you know, I couldn't have been a volunteer. In those days, you couldn't have families. So that was a great opportunity. My wife was willing to go. She was the daughter of a missionary in Chile, so, you know, it was not a foreign idea to her, and she spoke fluent Spanish and all that. So, you know, it was just kind of fun to do. I don't really remember much about the 60s. I had been in service, military service, come back and gone to graduate school, spent a year in a doctoral program, got sort of invited to do the peace corps thing being a parent with all those kids and coming back from the third world and seeing the world the way it was and you know i mean i was radicalized no question about it you know if you wanted to see a true left winger i was left wing i was upset at the u.s exploitation of honduras I was very angry at what would eventually follow with playing those military games down there in the name of anti-communism. And it just having been there, you know how much all of this stuff is just a political game and an economic game. And the losers usually are those poor third world people who can't fight back and don't have the press to share it.
6: And in the valley, ice chokes the river's mouth, but the air is still and silent in the mountains to the south. And here the fire in the cook stove drives the winter's chill away. While the silent southern sentries pass the watchful hours till day. And from the mountains of Virginia to the hills of Salvador, the mothers and the fathers send their children off to war, and the hand that rolled the plow. On the trigger in the night Killing other sons and daughters Fighting someone else's fight No mas, no more Shout the hills of Salvador Echo the mountains of Virginia We cry out No mas, no more No mas, no more Shout the hills of Salvador Compañeros, compañeros We cry out No mas, no more As the government of Poland looks to Moscow for its schemes, so the junta turns to Washington to work behind the scenes. While the white hand of the death squads, the rumble of the tanks, keeps the coffee on our tables and the money in our banks. No more, no more! Shout the hills of Salvador, echo the mountains of Virginia. We cry out, "No, mas, no more, no, mas, no more!" Shout! the Lord, Compañeros, compañeras, we cry out, no must no more. No sword shall turn to plowshares till the land is theirs to plow, till the name is on the ballot that rots in the prison now, and the weapons of the victory Shouting schools and food and jobs and a song From every mountaintop is faze de verdad No mas, no more, shout the hills of Salvador In Guatemala and Nicaragua we cry out No mas, no more, no mas, no more Shout the hills of Salvador Compañeros, compañeros, we cry out No mas, no more Victoria, Santiago, Beirut, San Salvador. Our silence buys the battles. Let us cry. No más, no more. No más, no more.
3: No, I don't think I ever, you know, somebody was asking me today, have you ever had any experience with marijuana or drugs? I couldn't even tell you. I've never tasted any of it. I don't even know what it is. And I'm not particularly interested in finding out. That's not where I want to do my experimentations in life. I'd rather try to figure out how to get rid of the big box economy or something.
2: The Extended Dream Foundation opened up another building recently. Can you tell me some of the stories of the people in that building and what you're doing over there?
3: Yeah, we call it the e-commerce center. It really is a kind of an organic development out of the small mall. Uh, We were having a real hard time in the small mall getting enough foot traffic to eventually pay our rent. We had a little subsidy for a while for part of it. And how were we going to do it? We have a beautiful bookstore, but you've got to have walk-in traffic. As you can see, we've sat here for an hour and nobody's come in. You know, we may sell $30, $40 a day. Uh, that's not going to do it. So we had to find a way of solving that problem, and we had a board member who taught us how to buy and sell on the Internet. So we became Internet salespeople and book scouts and what have you, and staying with it, we're g- getting pretty good. We make enough money to pay the rent. That also created the idea that Gee, one of the things that we could do, because the people buying and selling on the Internet were a couple of people around here who have disabilities. Well, why don't we teach people with disabilities how to be Internet buyers and sellers and be able to work out of their own home? Because a lot of them can't get conventional jobs because they look too funny or they move too slow or they talk too weird or their illness is such that they could never get up at 8 every morning and, you know, work till 4.00 because they never know what their night's going to be like with the nature of their diseases. And so it seemed to me that if we could train people how to do this, it would be a way of really expanding employment for people with disability. And that's what we've started to do, and we needed really a location to do it. We just didn't have any more space. We are a small mall. So I went over and figured out a way to buy a building. So we have a building in which we have low-income apartments on the top that pay for the running of the part on the bottom. I don't have the headaches I have with this downtown small mall paying the rent. And then stood to reason that we would kind of develop our vintage store because we're selling vintage items, you know, mainly antiques and collectibles on the Internet. So why don't we have a vintage store next to our classroom? So the bottom area has a nice classroom and a very nice vintage store So, you know, we take our metronome or whatever it is that we want to sell and walk it over to the training center and sell it on the Internet. And at the same time, we're training people to be able to develop the skill to do it. And hopefully we'll be able to follow through and help them know how to get inventory and how to carry through the whole business side, because it's complicated, shipping, handling, postage. There's a lot to learn. But we've just finished a class and started a second class. Now, these are not large classes because we have four computer banks. We can do about six people at a time. That's what we're doing. Then we happen to have another building that we're leasing. Partly, again, we build our services or sort of they develop around a person or personality who needs support. We have a man who fell off a roof, was in a body cast for six, well, actually for years, had been the best mason in iowa city now he's developing into a very quality furniture refinisher and etc and we have a little furniture refinishing shop there not a little one but a big one and it houses also a lawn and garden care company and of course then we do our own antiques that go over to the antique mall go out on the internet you know somebody laughs at me and and says well for a Gandhian and you're a pretty big capitalist but I guess the purpose is not to just exploit the world and fill the world with junk, but recycle a few products that make sense.
2: I notice something as you speak. You don't seem to tiptoe around the words. There's a political correctness philosophy that says you can't talk. You can't even point out someone's mentally ill or someone like that. And I find too much of that in the world. And it's kind of refreshing to hear you talk. It feels to me like the way you talk is more respectful rather than trying to pretend things aren't there. <laughs>
3: If you knew me <laughs> during the day or saw me, you know, everybody knows if you got a mental illness, I call you crazy. And, you know, I mean, we joke and, you know, they call me pre-Alzheimer's or whatever. It is respectful. This political correctness of mentally challenged, you know, my son's retarded. Retarded in the sense that he cannot read and write and conceptually think like you can, whatever you want to call that. Doesn't mean he's not a nice person, a great person. He's one of the loveliest kids that I know. He's 38 years old. I call him a kid. But I get by with that language. I don't know why, but nobody seems to be bothered except if I'd go to a meeting or something and the social workers would get after you. I'm too old to care about it anymore. You can call me politically incorrect and I'll thank you very much, kiss your hand, and go on and do my life the way I believe it should be done.
2: Tom, I'm just so happy that I stumbled on this place, stumbled on the news of you, because I think that these are the kind of things that make a city special. If people up in Eau Claire want to take their vacation instead of going to the big tourist sites, want to come down and see the small mall, want to connect here, or if they want to become patrons of your e-commerce center, do some book buying, all that kind of thing, how do they get a hold of you? How do they find where you are?
3: Well, I'm going to say this very slowly to your listeners. We have a wonderful website called UptownBills.org. And if you go into UptownBills.org, there's going to be links to everything if you're into the computer language and computer awareness. Otherwise, I'd encourage you to look for the book, The Unlikely Celebrity. Get your bookstore to order it. It's a wonderful story of Bill and a little bit of the legacy. Be aware of the fact that we will have a major documentary coming out in early 2007. It will probably be on network television somewhere. And if you come to Iowa City, be sure to just look us up. We're easy to find. Check the phone book, etc. If you want to write, it's thomas-walls at uiowa.edu is the email address, or 401 South Gilbert, Iowa City, Iowa 52240. For the small mall.
2: Thanks for your time, taking out time from cleaning those apartments, and thanks for keeping up the good work. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to an interview with Tom Walls of the Extended Dream Foundation and Uptown Bills Small Mall. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you can find useful links about this program and other programs. Music featured on this program has included You Have Lived by Don McLean, A Simple Man by Lobo, What You Do With What You've Got. It's a song by Psycon, performed here by Taggarton Wright, Bigger, Bigger, Bigger by Carol Johnson, and No Moss by John McCutcheon. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.
0: I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness Love and serve your neighbor, enjoy in joy and selflessness. Mm-hmm.